Today we're going to be looking at John chapter 15. That's what we looked at on that video. The title of today's message is The Truth of the Vine. And I'm going to start today by asking a question. Have any of you in life ever walked into a situation that's just complete chaos? You don't know what's going on. People are going back and forth. Nobody seems to know exactly what is happening. And you ask yourself the question, who is in charge around here? Who allowed this situation to get so messed up that it just seems like everybody's running around and nobody knows what to do right now? In the fire service, we had this same situation happen to us on a massive scale when the September 11th attacks happened. New York City had fire departments and fire personnel coming in literally from all over the country. They came as far away as California and even Alaska to come and help out during the aftermath of those attacks. What they found out is each one of these fire departments had their own unique command structures. Each one of these fire departments had their own way and own language to communicate that nobody else knew what they meant. Most of these departments even had a different terminology for the kind of vehicles they had parked in their fire station. Some people would call a fire engine an engine. Some people would call it a pumper. Some people would call it um, a quint. Some people would just, they'd use all kinds of different things. Matter of fact, they had a, a it was a documented case of a firefighter from out west who's used to dealing with wildfires a fire chief asked him to go grab that tanker over there and bring it over here because we need more water over here because the water system around that area wasn't running very well. And to him, a tanker is an aerial aircraft that drops water on top of a forest fire. So he had no idea what he meant by saying grab a tanker. He thought he was asking him to go, go to the airport and grab a tanker. So it's just one of those little things that we found out um, and why the initial response was kind of chaos initially. But what we learned from the September 11th tax weeks codified into what was now called the National Incident Command System, or otherwise known as NIMS. And what NIMS does for us is it teaches us a common language, a common command structure, and very specific delineated responsibilities within the command structure. If NIMS is used correctly, a firefighter from California should be able to jump right in here to Whitehall and understand what we're talking about, or vice versa. If I was to go out and help him right now in California with those wildfires, I'm going to be able to communicate and understand exactly what my job is supposed to be. And I can kind of hear you already wrote your thinking. What does this have to do with John chapter 15? What does this have to do with the video that we just watched that showed us this um, section of the scripture. Well, today we're going to explore how God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit operate as one within the church. In other words, we're going to look at the command structure of heaven and how that command structure interacts and interfaces with you and me in the, in the church today. It's been a few weeks since we've been in John's Gospel, so let me just refresh where we are. We're in a section of John's Gospel called the Upper Room Discourse. This is a series of teachings that Jesus does immediately the night before he goes to the cross. This is the last time that Jesus is going to be able to teach his disciples as a group before he goes to his death. So Jesus is being very, very specific about what he wants to tell these guys. He's very, very specific in his teachings before he goes and he leaves his disciples. 
So, and one of the most important things that Jesus can bring to his disciples is to understand exactly how this new kingdom of God is going to operate after he goes to the cross. So Jesus has to help unlearn or them unlearn what they think they know. Remember, they are old, they're still in the Old Testament here. Even though the Gospels are found in the New Testament, historically speaking, it's before the cross, so it's Old Testament. They have Old Testament beliefs, Old Testament knowledge, an Old Testament idea of what Messiah is supposed to be. So Jesus is using this time to start the processes that will change their thinking from the Old Testament where it's only been about God the Father. They only know God the Father. Remember, the Pharisees would always come to them and say, we know that God is our Father. They didn't know anything about God the Son, who was talking to them, ironically. And they didn't really know about God the Holy Spirit. They just thought that the Spirit of God was just part of God. So they didn't have this triune God that we understand from the entire canon of the Scriptures today. So today we're going to look at John chapter 15 and see how Jesus is using it to speak prophetically of how this new organization called the church is going to function. So let's ask God's blessing on our time today. Father God, we thank you. I thank you for your word. And I thank you for all the deep and incredible teachings that we see in John's 14, 15, and 16, Lord, this upper room discourse that you gave us. I ask, Father, that you just enable us to hear what you were saying to the church then and how it applies to our lives today so we can have a fuller appreciation of how the entire Godhead functions in the church and exactly what power is available for us today. Father, I ask this in your name. Amen. So today we're going to break down and see what Jesus is already looking to pass the cross. He's looking past the resurrection. He's even moving past the whole outpouring of the Holy Spirit that is about to come to the church after he goes to the cross and raises from the dead. And he's going to give his disciples some basic instruction of how the entire Godhead, the triune God, is intimately going to be involved with this thing called the church. So let's look and see how God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit functions in the church. Jesus here in John chapter 15 is laying a foundation that Paul is going to build on in about 20 years after these events. What Jesus gives us in brief, Paul expands on later in the Bible. And the basis of it is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 6, which says there are different kinds of gifts but the same Spirit distributes them. There are many kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are many kinds of working, but in them, in all of them, and in everyone is the same God at work. So since the Gospels are about Jesus, we'll actually begin with God the Son and how Jesus describes himself here. Jesus said in, John, in verse 1 of John 15, he said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. So Jesus creates a word picture of who he is to the church. And the first thing that Jesus said in his teaching of how the church is going to operate is the difference between the 
roles that the Father and the Son are going to have. Jesus compares himself to a vine and then makes several conditional statements of how he relates this to us as a word picture. Now this, word, this term conditional statement means that there is something required of us in order to be able to gain the benefits of being called a follower of Jesus. And the first condition that we see is that Jesus tells us in verse 4 to remain in him. He then explains why in verse 5 when he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Then he puts the condition down. He says, if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. The conditions being sent here by Jesus is simply this. If he is not the source, if he is not the power behind the labor that you're doing for him, and if the end of the labor that you're doing for him is not his glory, you're wasting your time. Because it's not going to live on in eternity. Jesus follows up with telling us what happens to those who try to serve God without him. And it's a very very scary, very fearsome picture that Jesus brings to our minds is that this branch that is broken off from this vine and it's taken and it's thrown into the fire. Let me illustrate this a little bit with something we all have probably seen. There's a tree right out here in front of the church and once a year it sprouts beautiful and fragrant purple blossoms. My wife loves that tree. The people who have allergies are going, yeah, I have to plug my nose when I come into church. But it's, it's very beautiful when you look at it. It has these purple blossoms, and it's, it's just very pretty. Now imagine that two weeks before this tree is going to sprout these beautiful purple blossoms, there's a branch somewhere on that tree that says, you know what? The, my blossoms on this tree are be more beautiful than the rest of this the blossoms on this tree. I don't need the tree. I'm just going to break myself off and fall to the ground and be beautiful down there. What's going to happen to that branch? Nothing. Is it ever going to blossom? It's cut itself off from its source of nourishment. It's cut itself off from its source to be able to bring and create beauty in this world. What if it blossomed and then broke off? Same thing would happen. This beauty that it has would quickly fade and quickly decay as just the natural forces of nature set in. That's why Jesus gives us this type of conditional statement where he puts that if in there. Jesus is telling us, apart from him, you can do nothing. You can do nothing beautiful that is going to last into eternity. If we cut ourselves off from the very source of life itself, how can we expect to produce life in anyone else? When our hearts are, are filled like that branch it wanted to break itself off with, with this pride and rebellion and arrogant thinking that it's all about me, it's all about my talent, it's all about my charisma or my skill or my effort, that's when Jesus said we are broken off from him and fit only for fire. There's another illustration, this one from this time from the Bible. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is talking specifically about a false prophet. Now, if you don't know what a false prophet is, within biblical history, a false prophet would be defined as man or a woman that assumed false spiritual authority for their own benefit. These were men and women who were never called by God, never empowered by God, never anointed by God. 
and were never used by God, yet they tried to lead people with their own strength, their own charisma, and in their own ideas. And unfortunately, not only in biblical times, but even today, there are a great many people that are led into false religions, and they have a false sense of security that they're saved and they're in God's favor. Jesus says this about them in Matthew 7, starting in verse 21. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many of them will say on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform miracles. Jesus said, Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. A few years ago, when we went through the Sermon of the Mount as a sermon series, I said that this scripture was one of the most frightening to me personally. It's sobering to me because it reveals the heart of everything that I do for Jesus. Am I doing it for him or am I doing it for me? It should be sobering for any Christian leader. And it should judge the thoughts and attitudes of their hearts and what they do for the kingdom. Now speaking just to us Pentecostals now, what I've discovered over the years is that there's a scary thing in the Pentecostal church. And is that the anointing can be faked. Many of you think that, oh, that's impossible, but not everybody has that spirit of discernment. You get a guy up here with a natural charisma, a silver tongue, and you'll watch them build a crowd. You'll watch them build a following. One of the most tragic examples of that is Jim Jones. 900 people died because of that guy. It'll look alive. It'll look prosperous. It'll look like God is blessing it entirely. But in the end, we find out it was never connected to the vine or at some point they separated themselves from the vine. This is why I spend so much of my time teaching you truth versus just preaching and whipping you up into an emotional frenzy. You need to know the truth because the truth is what sets you free. I do this so you can spot the fake. Let's look at the next role in the New Testament church which belongs to our Father God. And God is the gardener that Jesus describes. Some, some of the translations of the Bible call it the husbandman. If you were to ask your average Christian what the role of God the Father, and I actually did today or this week at work, what does God the Father do in the New Testament? Some of the, a lot of people had a hard time telling me what, what God the Father did in, in the church because it seems like Jesus is, is in the front now. Some people said, I don't know, I think he's taking a back seat. I think maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he got saved or something and he's, he's on a beach somewhere and Jesus is taking care of everything. They really couldn't describe the, the role of God the Father in the church. God is still God. He's still God the Father. He's still our Father. He's to be the source and direction of our worship. And Jesus describes God the Father's function and compares it to that of a gardener. Now again, the King James says um, the word husbandman in that, um, in that section of Scripture, and it be, they mean the same thing. Someone who works the soil to produce a crop. 
In fact, if you went to university right now, I know a couple farmers here in town that actually went to the University of Wisconsin in Madison and got a bachelor's degree in farming, and it's actually a bachelor's degree in husbandry. God the Father's job as a gardener is to cut off every branch that bears no fruit and prune the ones who do bear fruit. Now let's talk about the pruning. Pruning is defined as controlling how a plant is going to grow. Even though from the outside, if you were to watch a person prune a plant and you're kind of a, a person who loves plants, it looks really cruel. It looks like they're always snipping something off or they're always trimming something or they're always going in and, and, and just clipping something off. But the gardener or the husbandman does this for the plant's own good. So it can produce a stronger plant which yields a, an output of whatever that plant is being grown for. My, my grandfather was a gardener and he used to have a rose bush. And once or twice a week, He'd have his clippers. He actually had a little holster for him right here. And he'd go out and he'd pull every single branch of this rose, um, rose uh, bush across. And all of a sudden he'd be like, and snipping at him. And I'm, you know, I'm probably eight years old at the time. I'm like, what are you doing, Grandpa? Why do you keep snipping these off? They could be making more flowers and, and, and doing all this stuff. And he told me that if you did, if you prune a rose bush the right way, it'll produce bigger, stronger, and more beautiful flowers than if it was just left by itself because it can put all of its strength, all of its power into these nice, big, healthy branches instead of being choked off by all the little stuff. You and I are the same way. God is our gardener. He's our husbandman who is pruning the spirit of our lives. You know, God's always watching us. And when he sees a sick branch coming out of our spirit, he reaches down with his clippers, his spiritual clippers, and snip, tries to snip that thing off right away. He does it so we can grow stronger and produce more beauty that will be um, in a blessing of ours into eternity and attract others to Jesus. Our problem is, because of our stubborn, fallen human hearts, is we keep picking up these things he's clipping off and try to shove them back in. If you stick enough dead things into an otherwise healthy plant, you're going to cause sickness to the entire plant. That's why it's important to us, important for us that when the Father prunes away these things that don't benefit us spiritually, we leave them behind. We nail them to the cross, we turn our backs on them, and we leave it there. And this pruning will look a little different for everybody. Some people might say, well, I don't understand why this person can still do this and be a Christian. Well, it's going to look a little different for everybody. My plan of growth will look nothing like the plan of growth that God has for you. You and I aren't even the same kind of plant. This would be a good time to say amen and thank you, Jesus. Right? Amen. Yeah. Also, we need to trust that God in his wisdom has this plan of growth. It's not only a pattern for us as individuals, but it's a pattern for the entire community of believers that we call the local church. That's a positive sign of pruning, but there's also a seemingly negative side to it. God is faithful to prune away things that will ultimately 
causes harm on the personal level, but he's also faithful to prune away people who are ultimately going to cause harm to his church on the corporate level. This pruning at the church level doesn't necessarily mean that this person is being thrown into the fire. It could be that this person has reached a maximum amount of growth that they can get within, say, our church family, so God needs to move them to the next level. God has that prerogative because he is God. 1 Corinthians 12.18 says, In fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. So it's God's prerogative to move people as he sees fit. And I just trust that he knows what he's doing. And that I will bless those people and that God continues to use them to bring glory to the Son. Even though sometimes being a sending church kind of stinks because <laughs> you send them and they bless somebody else. But in the end, it's for God's glory and God's plan. The third thing Jesus talks about in John chapter 15 regarding the way the Godhead moves in the New Testament church is the role of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's role is to be in charge of the fruit or the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Briefly going back to 1 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul said there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. The Holy Spirit's role in the New Testament church is to be a conduit of the spiritual power in the life of the believer. Now I believe that in eternity past, God the Father, when he thought about you and me, he placed within us specific gifts specific talents, specific abilities, and specific desires even, that the Spirit, when you come into Jesus Christ and you are born again, the Spirit then takes that and supercharges it to bring blessing to the kingdom of God. A little bit of a rabbit trail here concerning the Holy Spirit. A few moments ago I mentioned this nebulous term in the Pentecostal church known as the anointing. I wanted to find that a little bit. The anointing, as biblically defined, is God the Father's personal stamp of approval, pleasure, authority, and power being placed on the individual to enrich the lives of the believers in the local church to the glory of Jesus Christ. That is how you would define the term anointing. A true God-given anointing will always point a believer to Jesus or an unbeliever for that matter, always point the people to Jesus. You see, when the Holy Spirit tries, or when a person tries to use the Holy Spirit to draw a person or a crowd into their own gifting and talent, we should immediately reject them. And remove, and they should be removed from a position of authority because they're operating in the flesh, or worse, manifesting something from the kingdom of darkness to deceive the people of God. So our litmus test for determining true anointing is this. Who is it glorifying? Is it pointing people to God? Is it pointing people to a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ? Or is it drawing it to them? Now I'll exit the rabbit trail. Verse 8 of John chapter 15, Jesus describes the benefit of us living in the Holy Spirit's guidance. And it is this. Jesus said, it is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit in showing yourself to be my disciples. It shows that the entire 
Godhead is involved in sustaining and growing the local church through both its individuals and its collective representation as the kingdom of God. There's also a second prophetic message in John chapter 15 that I'm going to briefly touch on this morning, and it's this, is that we have a command to persevere. The command to persevere. If we look at verses 9 and 10 and 14, they all contain conditional statements. Remember, we said a conditional statement simply means there's something required for something else to take place. A conditional statement would be like, it will remain dark in here unless we turn the light on. Something has to happen for something else to occur. Within John chapter 15, there are several conditional statements. Verse 9 Jesus says, as my Father has loved me, so I have loved you, now remain in my love. That's a conditional statement. You have to remain in my love. It's up to you. Jesus then tells us how to do it, and they're all conditions of remaining in his love. Verse 10 says, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. That's a conditional statement. There's an if there. Jesus is tying our faith to him with our obedience to the moral commands of God. What Jesus is saying is that they are not mutually exclusive. We try, sometimes we, we preach so much about grace that we lose the fact that obedience is part of it. Salvation is free. Staying there requires some effort. Our obedience proves our love. It shows the world that what we believe in is actually true. Let me put this in a modern way. Too many Christians today are claiming to be Green Bay Packers fans while wearing a Vikings jersey. What do I mean by that? It means that you're saying you're one thing on the inside, but on the outside you're showing another. The world, people outside the church who have no spiritual discernment, can only judge what's on the outside. So the life you live before them is all they can judge you by. You can't tell people of a life-changing gospel if you have not allowed that gospel to change your life. That's how our obedience to the commands of God are tied in with our salvation. It allows what is happening on the outside to be shown also on the inside. That every part of our personal and private and public life actually matches what we believe. And I have to make this incredibly point to show you this. Verse 6 of John chapter 15 says, If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are to be picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. That means you can fall away from the gospel. That means if you flirt too long in the enemy's camp, he is going to snare you. And you will lose that good deposit that Jesus placed within you. Jesus is speaking prophetically right now into the hearts of everyone in the sound of my voice. You can't play with fire and expect not to be burned. Common sense tells you that. The Bible proclaims it over and over and over again. And even shows us in the lives of people who have gone before what happens when we try to take, play in the kingdom of darkness while proclaiming we're actually in the kingdom of God. And you'll see in those, in the, especially the Old Testament, 
It always ends badly. God will not be mocked. What a man sows, that which he, what he sows, he will reap. If you sow to the kingdom of heaven, you'll reach blessing. And if you sow to the kingdom of darkness, you'll reap destruction. It's a binary choice. It's either this or it's that. There's no third way. There's not a middle way. That's why throughout the Gospels, Jesus commands us to persevere. That's why throughout the epistles, Paul, Peter, and John, and James command us to persevere. That's why God gave us the Bible, so that we can see both the good and the foolish actions of those who came before us, so we could learn from them and avoid their mistakes. That's true wisdom. True wisdom is defined as this. You don't learn from your mistakes. You learn from other people's mistakes, so you don't have to go through it. Amen? That's true wisdom. I leave us this morning with a final thought. And that is the world's reaction to the church. Jesus said, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. This is why the world hates you. It sounds like such a downer to end a sermon with, doesn't it? Most of our lives, we, most of us will try to live our lives in such a way that most people will like us. Yet Jesus is insinuating here that no matter how hard you try, people are not going to like you if you're a Christian. There are some people that are absolutely going to hate you for being a Christian. The reason is, you're a Packers fan, wearing a Packers jersey in Viking Stadium during the NFC Championship game. You're not going to get love from the people wearing the purple. Let me illustrate this another way. From the 1950s up until the mid-90s, there was this thing called the Cold War, in which the Soviet bloc had thousands of ICBMs aimed at us in America, and we had thousands of ICBMs aimed back at them. I remember being in elementary school and practicing nuclear drills where we'd have to dive under the desk, put our hands tight over our, our eyes, and, and put our head down because we thought for any moment those nuclear missiles would be flying. But that's nothing compared to the animosity between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. The hatred that's being shown toward Christians right now is only going to get worse. It's been unparalleled in any human description that I can use. That's the world that we live in right now. It's a world that largely follows a kingdom of darkness. So when you as a representative of the kingdom of God interact with it, that's why sometimes we get the hatred back. What we have to realize is that we are in a war right now. Ever since Jesus went to the cross and even before then, in the Garden of Eden, that war has been raging and raging and raging. And we are the people that are, that are fighting it at the ground level. But we don't wage and fight this war as the world does. The Bible says that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. In other words, they're not of this world. But it gives us a promise that the weapons that God gives us are mighty through God, through the pulling down of strongholds. You ask, what are strongholds? What's this word called a stronghold? A stronghold is simply the grip of sin, the grip that sin has on the heart of every single human being that hasn't given their heart to Jesus.
The weapons of our warfare are showing the love of God, speaking the truth, being empowered by the Holy Spirit to show the world the way to salvation. And our world desperately needs that. Amen? Amen. The truth is that we are engrafted into the vine of Jesus. He is to be our source. He is to be everything to us because he is the source of all of our nourishment. That means we have to submit to God's pruning. That means we have to persevere. That means we have to use our giftings for, for the kingdom of God and not to enrich ourselves. And we do all of this so that we can introduce those who don't know Jesus to the God who loves them, to the Savior who died for them, and to the Spirit who wants to live inside them and give them the true life that this Godhead has always wanted for every human being. Let's pray. Father God, I ask, Lord, that you just create within us a sense of being connected to Jesus. Lord, we all have, a, have our issues. We all have our, our pet sins. We all have our, our opinions. But Lord, your word says here that if we are engrafted into the vine, that means we should be dependent upon that vine for everything. So Jesus, make us a needy people. Make us a people that are completely and totally dependent upon you for everything. Lord, I ask that you would make us willing to even let God the Father prune us to snip away those things that are not pleasing to, to you. And most of all, if they're not pleasing to you, they are harmful for us. Help us to have a heart that trusts you however you decide to prune us every moment of every day. And Father, I ask, Lord, that you just help us to see everything that you have given us, blessed us with, gifted us with, everything in our lives comes back to you. It is all yours. The Bible says that we are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Let us glorify you with everything, Lord, with our talents, our time, and our treasure. Father God, I thank you, Lord, for this group of people. I thank you, Father, for their commitment to the mission of seeing the kingdom of God grow here in Whitehall and throughout Trempeleau County and even the world through our missions giving. I thank you, Lord. I ask, Father, for your blessing to be upon them. Help them to dig deeper into the vine this week. I ask, Father, that you bless travels. I ask, Father, that you bless time with family. I ask, Father, that you just bless them during this time of thanksgiving and place within them thankful hearts for everything you have done for us. Lord God, I ask this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.